Welcome to Visibility Radio. This is Kenneth Poir and this is episode two of All Things Digital and All Things Accessible. With me again is Dr. Scott Hollier. He is the man to ask the questions about all things digital and all things accessible. Dr. Scott Hollier, welcome to Visibility Radio. Thank you, Kenneth. Great to be back again. Okay, now, last episode, we had a general sweep across all things digital, and we took in things such as the new technologies that are appearing and the new apps and how people are using them. But I have this big question, and I've encountered this many, many times before as a user. I get to a point where I'm supposed to do something online or on a website or on a digital device, and it just begins to distress me and unnerve me because I'm not sure whether my security is being looked after. So we're going to talk about security today. Perhaps we can start with you giving us a sense of what internet security is and what it isn't. Sure. I think in terms of what it is, it's certainly something that is extremely important. And Security, when we talk about security, we can talk about it in terms of our personal data, being sure that and confident that the data that we put into the internet, be it through online banking or um, our social media posts or whatever we do, we have the confidence that that data is being used in the way that we intend it and also that the data is being seen only by the people that we want it to be seen. And look, it doesn't have to be just uh, something that we typed in, or it could be um, something like the Internet of Things, like a Google Home or something like that, and how it records and monitors us. And I think a very important aspect of security is also privacy, um, and the two do tend to go hand in hand. We want to not only know that our information is secure in what we're doing, but also we want to know that, uh, yes, there aren't people looking at it that uh, shouldn't be. So it's it's interesting going forward as to what that means and uh, what its relevance is for um, someone who's blind or vision impaired. Hmm. Now, you talked about online banking, and sometimes you're on the internet, whether it's an online banking site or whether or not it's on eBay, and you come to the point where you're ready to make a transaction and it says, key in what is on the screen uh, to prove that you're not a robot and you can't see it and you sort of hazard a guess and say, I'll just do this. And in the back of your mind, you're wondering, have I sort of given away too much? Have I compromised my security? How does a blind or low vision person deal with those situations? Well, it's really timely that we're having this conversation because what you're referring to is known as a capture, And this is a Turing test that tries to determine if you're a computer or a human. And most people will be familiar with captures because they are those really annoying boxes with weird squiggly characters which you're meant to try to be able to determine. And then by answering that box, it then goes, okay, yes, you are a human and we'll let you continue doing what you're doing. But the reality is for people who are blind or vision impaired especially, they are really, really hard to do. Even the audio-based captures, which can sometimes give you some audio as an alternative to the visual captures, are also really, really hard because often the audio will deliberately be garbled so computers can't figure it out. And they'll often say things like 7, Wednesday, 4, and then you have to go, okay, well, when they said 7, do they mean the word 7 or the number 7? It's So captures are generally very confusing. Um, now, what's been really interesting just very, very recently and this ties in a bit with my work with W3C, is that we've been doing a lot of research around captures because they have been such a bugbear for people who are blind or vision impaired for a very long time. And what's interesting is that the main argument for using captures is that 
people can use automated tools called bots to go in and do things really quickly in an unsecure way to complete processes like buying a whole stadium full of tickets to a concert instead of checking that each person is buying them individually. What's been interesting with the research that um, I've been a part of with W3C is that captures are no longer that secure in themselves. So the big argument was, well, people with disabilities unfortunately kind of have to put up with it because of security. But about one in five captures um, get cracked immediately. And more research is coming out all the time that even when you try different types of captures, so now there's some captures where you can see two pictures and you have to tell which one is the man and the woman or um, a mathematical equation or other things. Broadly speaking, um, computers have evolved to a point where these captures can be cracked. And so all they're really doing now is telling someone who has a disability apart from someone who doesn't have a disability. And that's, uh, that's really not on. What's interesting is that the W3C is now revising its caption note, and I've been involved in this process, to try and explain to the world that actually captures just don't work that well anymore. So this is probably the, the fundamental barrier that people with disabilities complain about the most, stopping them from completing tasks online. And yeah, they've always been explained in point of view of that they have to exist, but actually they don't. We need to find other ways to achieve the same outcome. Now, apart from that, I've also encountered, and this is just very recent, I was completing a government agency form, and at the end of it, it says, put in your electronic signature. And, you know, I tried a dozen times, and it's not within a box, or it's been done incorrectly. Isn't that something as well that we should be addressing with the agencies? Well, this is a fascinating example of where we have the technology to solve a problem, but we don't. And even both in terms of signatures in completing forms and also um, things like onboarding processes. When you're starting a new job, and you've got to fill out the paperwork for your tax declarations and things like that. So often, these things fall back to an accessible paper. I mean, even just recent times, we've had same-sex marriage postal survey, which was done in accessible print. And again, there was an expectation that you would have to fill out a printed form. So we certainly have the technology to address these things and there should be an easy mechanism to do a digital signature. But depending on how that form needs to be completed online, it might be in a PDF form or a um, document with a very inaccessible uh, form. It might be online, which again has an inaccessible form. And the norm of this process online is as inaccessible, if not more so, than the paper version. So Unfortunately, this is something that we're stuck with at the moment, and there's no reason why this process has to be difficult. There are some countries and um, some companies which have made huge inroads. Microsoft, for example, uh, in their onboarding process for new employees, they've got it in a completely accessible process. So it can be done, but uh, yes, I think there'll still be some time before that becomes easy, and in the meantime... If you can't fill out a paper form, then you need to ask someone for help. You know, there goes your uh, privacy again. Right, yes. Now, talking about privacy, I want to jump onto something which I encounter, and I think quite a number of people would have noticed it, whether they like it or not. I'm on an iPhone, and I'm using my voiceover, and I'm on a train or in a public area, and I'm using my iPhone to access information which would normally be private if I'm using my headphones. But if I'm not, and something comes through and it's reading out a code number or something like that, doesn't that compromise my security right from the very start? It does. And this is one of the um, difficulties for people who use assistive technologies, having to weigh up some of the benefits versus the risks. 
in the last podcast and um, our chat online, we talked a bit about how beneficial technology is, and I certainly don't want to um, take anything away from the huge amount of benefits that um, things like smartphones provide. But the downside is that if you do want to have that feature, you do have to balance up how much you declare to the world about what you're doing. And some people have found compromises by using things like bone conductor headphones. And for those not familiar with that, it's where uh, you have headphones that rather than going into your ears, they sit on your cheekbones and they give you the information in an audio mechanism that way. But you can still hear a lot more of the outside world. So using um, Bluetooth bone conductor headphones can be a compromise to help solve that problem but the reality is that often if you're on the go and you just pull out your phone then yes there's a chance that uh, you are broadcasting all your personal information to anyone walking past and so I think in this day and age we do have to um, weigh up what uh, the pros and cons of that are. Now the other thing is when you're on the internet and you're trolling through a website we think that we're in complete control of what we're consuming but there are ways where people actually jump out with little windows and you're not quite sure what it is and you click on a button and you're hijacked to another website. Don't these things present so many instances of insecurity for the user? They do. And a reality is for people who are blind or vision impaired, when you get phishing emails where they look like your bank or they look like something legit and you click on links, and they whisk you off somewhere um, unexpected, but you may not always realise it's not the legitimate thing. Yeah, people with disability are particularly susceptible to things like this, and not just a vision impairment. There are other disability groups that find this very difficult as well. And I think in terms of general tips to try and combat this, I think it's just important to always check the email address of where this is coming from. So, for example, if ANZ are sending you a email Firstly, they won't specifically ask you for your password and they'll direct you, they'll encourage you to log into the website and do things. But if an email comes actually from ANZ, then that would be different to, say, ANZ at um, bigpond.com or something. So, you know, sometimes there are clues where you can see, okay, where did this email actually come from? What is it actually asking me to do? And if it says your password is expired or, you know, you must immediately take action on something, then I'd recommend going to that website not through clicking on the email, but if it's, say, your bank, then just go through your normal banking processes. Mm. And if you go log on through a normal process and you get a message come up, then you know it's real. And if you don't, and usually it's not, then chances are it's just junk mail. But yes, the look and feel of emails can be very tricky, especially if you're vision impaired trying to um, figure that out. So the best way to do it is just to, again, check what the address is and then rather than activating the links through the email, just go to that website that you would normally do the process and see if there's a problem there. Right. Now, what other instances of insecurity can you identify that would confront someone who's blind, who's using a digital device or the web? And are there any words of advice? I mean, you've given us quite a good number of pieces of advice already. Are there any instances which we've not talked about in terms of internet security? I think we do need to particularly keep an eye on the permission of apps. So when you download an app on your iPhone or on an Android smartphone, generally you'll get information about what type of things on your phone the uh, app is going to access. Now, again, as you mentioned, Kenneth, before, um, when you've got a screen reader turned on, uh, you're a little bit more vulnerable if you don't have some sort of uh, headphones to um, keep track of that. 
but also the app itself might be doing all sorts of things in terms of transmitting private data about your location and uh, other things. And also, I think whilst a lot of apps are very useful, as I was mentioning in our, our last chat about Google Maps, for example, uh, you also need to be aware that there are various apps that can, as Google Maps, can sort of tell where you are and where you're going. Other apps can also tell where you are and where you're going. And depending on who you are and what you're doing, there is always a risk that you can be identified. There could be implications for that. So I'd suggest keeping a very careful eye whenever you download an app on what things you are agreeing to when you use that app. Are you sending off all your contact information? Are you sending off all the information about where you've been and where you're going? And is that a worthy trade-off for the benefit? A good example is that in my home, I have a Google Home, a digital assistant. And the digital assistant is really handy because I can ask it to play a radio station and it instantly does. I can ask it in the morning to give me the weather and um, and some news headlines and it does a really good job of that. But I also know that by giving these commands, um, I'm giving Google a lot of information. And just recently, they had to um, do a software update to the Google Home Mini because it discovered it was accidentally recording a lot of the things that were being uh, discussed in the home. Um, Samsung got in trouble in a similar way with its smart TVs <laughs> listening in when it shouldn't have. We need to just be aware that a lot of these devices are a little bit 1984-esque. They do spy, they do keep an eye on us, but rather than it being planted in our home for malicious purposes, we invite them into our home. And it's not to say that the companies are deliberately trying to um, exploit us and uh, what we do, but it is worth just always considering, is the benefit I'm receiving worth the trade-off of possible privacy and security? And in my case for the Google Home, um, the answer for me personally is yes, because it does prove to be so useful. But it is an important uh, thing that for people to consider, and everyone needs to uh, make their own decisions on that. Now, you've raised a good point because these things really do happen, as you've pointed out. So is there an independent body that has got both the standards and the ability to enforce these standards? Or is it just a closed group of people of slap each other's back buddies who are saying, okay, these are the standards that we are going to set, but these are the manufacturers themselves? This is one of those questions that's both yes and no. (laughs) (laughs) Look, in terms of Google and Microsoft and Amazon and uh, Apple, they are largely a a force unto themselves. So, you know, they collect your data through Siri or through their apps or through their phones. And and look, they can largely do with that data as they wish. So there's not a lot, at least in this current climate. But uh, that said, there are privacy and security uh, legislative frameworks that try to keep them in check. How well that works is uh, is hotly debated topic online. That said, when we look at um, organisations and coming back to the one I'm involved in with W3C, as we look at the web of things, as they call it, the future of internet of things, privacy and security are certainly really big issues. And as new guidelines and things like that are developed, ensuring that privacy and security is considered is really important. I mean, to come to a, um, a more um, smaller example... When people put in their passwords, sometimes you'll get information back in um, a red color saying, you know, your password was um, invalid or something like that. But people who are colorblind can't see that that's in red or that perhaps there is information provided in color as security information often is. And then a lot of people can't pick that up. So addressing this, you know, those are things we can fix. So there are things that can be done to make security much more available to people who are blind and vision impaired. 
But yes, in terms of the megacorps and um, the data they collect, how much can be done about that, I, I unfortunately don't really know. They could easily be both the police and the thief. They could be, and uh, and we may be none the wiser either way. So it's um it's really interesting food for thought. I know that this is um, you know, standards bodies, legislators, and everyday consumers are um are wrestling with this all the time. Yeah. Now the other thing, which is probably an easier fix, is sometimes you download an app or you want to download something on the internet which you think is going to be really useful and then you hit with these terms and conditions and these terms and conditions are presented in an inaccessible format. You can't get your computer to read them and you're left with the dilemma, do I agree or do I disagree? What does one do in those strange moments? Well, a classic example is when you're installing Windows 10 since the last major update. And um, as you're installing it, Cortana, the digital assistant, actually talks you through. When you get to the license agreement, and Cortana actually says to you, she said, here is a license agreement. Click I agree if you agree. But if you don't, well, that means no Windows. So, you know, and she actually says that. So, you know, it's like, great, my choice is I can either use my computer or not. So, uh, you know, what, what am I going to do? Well, naturally, you're going to click on I agree. Otherwise, you've just um, bought your computer and now you have to throw it in the bin. So... In circumstances like that, your choices are limited. Now, I mean, there's been lots of things on the internet where people have, you know, had massive long terms of service and they've buried in there somewhere things like commit to sell my soul to this company or or something like that. And people, again, people click agree because, you know, you're not going to wade through all that. So, again, I think it really just comes back to the point where you need to seriously consider what are the benefits of this to me? And if there are privacy or security implications, do the benefits outweigh the risks? And it really ultimately harks back to that all the time. Like the example with the apps and how much data is this app going to um, pinch from my device and um, and monitor me? And look, it's not always an easy decision. As I was saying in our last chat, um, I use an app where I can find out immediately where I am. I can find out uh, what food places are near me and um, I can instantly read a menu, do a scan on a menu, and it can read out the text to me. Now, those things are all great, but I've also agreed that all that information goes straight back to the manufacturer of the app. So if there was malicious intent, then um, that person could know the things I'm reading, they could know where I've been, and that is a little uncomfortable. But that said, it is such a useful app that for my personal needs, uh, the risk is low in terms of anyone, the chance of anyone actually turning up in my house and wanting to talk to me about this, so um, I decided that um, it's worth it. Are there any idiosyncrasies of legacy softwares that leave the person who is blind or with low vision more vulnerable today? I think there are. As um, assistive technologies have evolved, the products get better in terms of being able to provide support to you online. Um, But even now, I mean, with screen magnifiers, the very nature of a screen magnifier is that you zoom into a portion of the screen to um, do what you need to do. Now, if someone hides something uh, malicious over on the um, bottom uh, right of the website there's a good chance of not going to see it because yeah. usually you start in the top left and you sort of follow the navigation and you read down the page. Things on the right-hand side, the very far right, I may not even um, come across as a screen magnifier user. So as a result, using some of these technologies can make you a little more vulnerable. And so when these products were initially designed, they weren't designed with the idea that security would be an issue. And even if they it's debatable how much they could do about that. So I think the um, the legacy of how assistive technology is used and how web pages and apps are structured can certainly 
be affected because using a screen reader, for example, um, the way text is read out is quite linear, but information is not always presented to you in a linear manner when you're visually looking at things online. So this is the um, the challenge, and it's just good for people to just be um, um, careful, and um, I'd certainly recommend that people stick to the more brightly lit streets of the web. Um, it's very easy to uh, wander off the path, as it were, and have all sorts of interesting things flash on the screen or <laughs> read stuff to your screen reader or get enlarged on your screen magnifier. And look, the more that you try to stick to familiar roads, yeah, generally, the better you are with security and privacy. So looking forward, do you see developments and improvements that will translate these concerns into better security for the person who's blind or low vision and constant or a frequent user of the digital space and the internet? There are. And certainly when we look at legislation in different countries, there's always an ongoing arm wrestle around the uh, freedoms of the web and how that relates to uh, privacy and security. Again, the uh, the big corporations, it's very hard to um, say with any definitive answer as to um, how uh, accountable they are for privacy and security Standards bodies are working very hard to make sure that privacy and security are considered in any solution. And in the last chat, we we're talking about the driverless car. Well, certainly, um, we need to make sure that if someone has data as to where you have gone in that driverless car, you know who actually gets to know that. And um, because, needless to say, everything will be computerized, so that data is there for the taking. So the question is, well, how does that data get used? And Privacy security isn't always a bad thing. I mean, for example, if someone is monitoring the weather, well, that's information that is immediately relayed to the web and we can all get hold of it. So we don't want to completely stop the ability for people to grab data in real time, stick it out there and give it to us. What we do need to do is make sure that whenever that does happen, it's done in a a controlled way that we're comfortable with. So organisations like government, like web standards are trying to find where that balance is. But yes, I'm still not sure about the big corpse, unfortunately. Right. So as you talk about balance, I think it's also a balance of the user being smart about the way they use things and exercising some common sense, as well as advocating for better standards amongst the big manufacturers and perhaps even joining independent bodies that will provide a voice for the users. There's a lot of organisations, if you're very passionate about this area, that you can join. Certainly the EFF, the Electronic Frontiers Foundation, are um, are a big one. Um, SAW3C, we're doing a lot of work in this space at the moment. But, you know, within Australia, there's certainly a lot of interest from government. It wasn't that long ago we had a big discussion around metadata and how that's provided to us and what the government is or isn't allowed to be aware of. But yes, I mean, there is some irony attached with all this too. I mean, when you consider that there's often discussion about whether or not parents should put apps on their kids' smartphones to uh, keep track of where they are at all times and whether that's appropriate. Um, meanwhile, Google is probably always keeping track of where we are all the time. So, But we seem a bit more comfortable that this uh, giant, you know, unnamed person, body, company is doing that. It's interesting. My final question for this episode Do you think there is legal redress for someone who has suffered the consequences of insecurity? There is. It has varied a bit in terms of what that legal redress is. At the moment, there's um, a lot of discussion about revenge porn and things like that where people have posted inappropriate pictures of people they're in a relationship with to humiliate them online. And certainly in those contexts, we're seeing a lot more discussion now about 
how that can be firstly stopped and b what recourse there is for anyone that does such things the concept of dealing with security or privacy is a big one um we've seen data breaches on a massive scale uh, in the us um most recently we're we talking about yahoo i uh, guess yahoo's one really good example we've also seen an example of a big um, credit agency in the US which um you know a, a massive amount of data was leaked and there is now recourse um for people who are affected by that so coming back to more personal privacy and security um i think there is certainly a move on at the moment to make sure that there is more accountability but unfortunately it still does really come back to the person as to uh, what checks they have done what decisions they have made and ultimately um how they've weighed up the balance between getting those uh, benefits and help from technology as opposed to um, what the privacy and security implications might be. Right. Well, that sums it up for this episode of All Things Digital and All Things Accessible. I want to thank you again, Dr. Scott Hollier, for being with us. Thanks so much. Until the next episode, this is Kenneth Poir signing off. This episode was edited by Matthew Clark.